This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. When the internet first proliferated in the 1990s, the prevalent global mood was that the world was on a path towards more freedoms, more access, and more openness. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton famously told reporters that the very idea of controlling the internet would be like nailing jello to a wall. Well, Clinton was talking about China there, and China figured out how to nail the jello eventually. In China and around the world, the internet has splintered into smaller silos of controlled conversations. And while technology has connected the world, it has also disconnected communities. It's been the source of new and emerging threats related to privacy, misinformation, disinformation, cyber attacks, and much more. The rise of artificial intelligence will provide each of these forces with more data and more power. A recurring question in policymaking is how countries can build rules to safeguard the growth of AI and how they can deter the worst instincts of countries that seek to compete with each other. The question is vital in particular for the United States, which continues, for now at least, to lead the world in the most cutting-edge aspects of chip-making, software, research, and talent. Last year, to address all of those issues and to connect gaps between departments, the U.S. State Department created a Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy. That new bureau is run by Ambassador-at-Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy, Nathaniel Fick. Fick is a former CEO of the cybersecurity software company Endgame and also a former Marine who served on combat tours of Afghanistan and Iraq. We've run quite a few episodes lately on wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, so I thought we'd try something different this week. You'll hear Fick refer to a forthcoming visit to India. That was for the G20, of course, right before we taped in August. We will, of course, come back to the news very soon. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine and website, and you can sign up too on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Also, if you like this podcast, please rate us, leave a comment, share it with a friend. We'd love to grow what we do. Let's dive in. Nathaniel Fick joins me now. Ambassador, welcome to FP Live. Ravi, it's great to be here with you. I'm a I'm a viewer, a listener, a reader, so I'm I'm very pleased to be on with you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time and your engagement. So I'm going to start with the very basics. You've been in your role for almost a year now, and it seems to me the new Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy has a pretty broad remit. What's a good way of explaining what you do? We're leading technology diplomacy for the United States, and that really means three big buckets of tech topics, uh, cybersecurity policy, uh, telecommunications policy, everything from 
cable and fiber to data centers, wireless networks and satellites, and emerging technologies, most acutely AI and quantum. And who was previously handling these issues and what was previously missing in U.S. diplomacy? So in other words, why did we need this new bureau? Yeah, the new bureau integrates and elevates uh, work that had been happening previously in disparate areas around the department. Uh, and it adds some new things. But that integration and elevation role, I think, is really important. Integration because it's increasingly difficult to talk about cybersecurity without also talking about the underlying infrastructure on which the data travels. It's becoming increasingly hard to talk about any of these technologies without talking about AI or quantum computing and then elevating. So putting an ambassador in charge, a, a Senate confirmed person who has a seat at the interagency table was uh, part of the purpose in, in really elevating our diplomacy in areas that in some cases have been over-securitized, but putting diplomacy back at the forefront as the nation's tool of first resort. You know, and some countries have chief digital officers, some countries have IT ministers, America doesn't, of course. Why do you think the administration picked you in particular for this role as an outsider to come in and, and do these things? I think these issues are intrinsically um, what we call in government multi-stakeholder, not only bilateral or multilateral. Uh, yes, of course, they're about the relationships between and among states, but the balance of the technology, of course, is developed in the private sector. The majority of the talent sits in the private sector. The bulk of the attack surface we care about protecting is in the private sector. So much of the normative work and the values work is happening across civil society organizations. And so part of the goal here was to uh, bring in not only one person, but a group of people with uh, other perspectives, outside perspectives, in order to build something new inside the department. It's as close to a startup as you're going to get in a large bureaucracy like the Department of State. So since you bring up the private sector, I mean, it strikes me that so much of the intelligence, the resources are in the hands of the private sector. And, you know, some of that, much of that is American, I should say, but some of it is global and multinational as well. Where does government fit into the picture and where do U.S. interests fit into that sort of spectrum? And I bring this all up to ask, you know, is government too reliant on the private sector when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, again, I think that most of the tech, the talent, the attack surface are in the private sector. And so uh, a priority for us is taking the term public-private partnership uh, from a buzzword and, and trying to develop it into real iterative substantive engagement that benefits both parties. The private sector needs government policy across a whole bunch of issues from regulatory harmonization around the world so that companies have access to markets that are uh, generally like each other in, in some key areas, leveling the playing field and recognizing that uh, even if you're a Wall Street bank spending hundreds of millions of dollars of year, a year on cybersecurity, when you're up against nation state actors, it's not always gonna be possible to defend yourself. And so you do need government intervention, the tools of government, uh, deterrence in order to help level that playing field. So 
the private sector needs government just as uh, government needs the private sector and needs access to all of that capability and that innovative horsepower. So I think one of our goals, again, is to is to really restore public-private partnership to a substantive term. When I was a CEO and I would come in to a government meeting, often that partnership meant that I was giving up data to the government that was getting classified and I was getting nothing back. I think the war in Ukraine has actually transformed the way that we work uh, together, governments and companies, in, in some very positive ways. And what are the downsides there? I mean, so as someone who was in the private sector before, um, you're being very open about the upsides. What could go wrong? Look, I, I think we've seen uh, that the United States in particular, and, and you said it, the majority of many of these hyperscale global technology companies, they are American companies. Uh, we do want to maintain a vibrant uh, domestic innovation ecosystem. And uh, it is hugely to our benefit if our close allies and partners also have vibrant tech ecosystems. We want successful globe-spanning technology businesses to be built in Europe. Uh, we want them to be built in Japan and Korea and Australia. We benefit from large global ecosystems of technology innovation. And we cannot afford for our approach to be entirely laissez-faire. So our North Star ought to be maintaining our innovative edge. It ought to be ensuring that we have in immigration policy, tax and regulatory policies, ecosystem benefits that encourage uh, business creation and growth. And uh, I was heartened to see the president's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year calling for domestic privacy regulation, uh, calling for some mechanisms of platform algorithmic transparency and uh, accountability. We cannot afford when these technologies are so powerful and so intertwined with every aspect of our lives, uh, we can't afford for our approach to be entirely laissez-faire. So uh, one of the big, I think, animating discussion points this year in foreign policy has been industrial policy and you know how a range of countries, not just the United States, are investing in industrial policy when it comes to physical infrastructure, digital infrastructure, and essentially a form of protectionism to get that edge that you're describing. Now, much of industrial policy is often about championing the private sector in certain areas or favoring parts of the private sector to get that edge. Tech strikes me as a little bit different where the relationship is a bit more symbiotic. Is that right? I, I think that's right. Let me take maybe a couple of steps back and try to explain a, a worldview. Um, on this topic from my perspective. And look, we're all prisoners of our own experience to some extent. Uh, I was in college uh, studying international affairs and, and government at a time when people were saying that the world is flat or history ended. And clearly the world's not flat and history didn't end. And you said in your introduction, the purely democratizing uh, promises of technology have proven to be uneven. There are upsides, but there are downsides too. And so uh, I think it's incumbent upon those of us representing technically advanced wealthy societies to articulate a positive vision um, and our, an, an affirmative, inclusive, attractive vision for what our shared technology future can be. Uh, that ought to be the North Star. 
Uh, and at the same time, we need to recognize that uh, whether we want it or not, an element of strategic competition is endemic now to everything we do. Maybe it was always there below the waterline. It's back above the waterline. And uh, I am of the view that a nation or a coalition's ability to innovate in technology is a foundational source of power. It sits on the same level as factors like geography or demography or natural resources, not on the same level as things like GDP or military capacity. Those traditional measures of power are increasingly downstream of our ability to innovate technically. And so what all of that means in, in my view is that we have to lead with the affirmative vision. We have to speak positively about the power of what's possible here. And we have to be responsible about the governance regime uh, to make sure that uh, we're building that technology future that is, uh, that is inclusive and rights respecting while mitigating the worst downsides. Mm. You bring up a lot of issues there, and I guess we'll go through them bit by bit in the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, but I want to bring up the White House's new cybersecurity strategy, uh, which was released in the spring. It's one of many things that sort of partly fall within your remit. Uh, it's also an area that can get mired in congressional approval, dealing with pushback from the private sector. What's your sense of how that strategy is panning out so far and the gaps between uh, the strategy as written uh, and as it could be implemented? Yeah, I think that strategy um, was developed via a very inclusive process and now is being implemented according to a very disciplined execution plan. It articulates a couple of big conceptual ideas. One of them is incentivizing long-term investments in security rather than constantly playing whack-a-mole. Uh, the second is shifting the burden for security onto the shoulders of those most able to bear it, uh, particularly uh, software and hardware developers, large companies, governments, uh, rather than individual consumers. So those are two big conceptual shifts, both of which from my perspective as a, as a longtime executive in this space before serving in government were necessary shifts. The, the place that the strategy intersects most clearly with my remit now at the State Department is in its fifth pillar, the international pillar. Um, and I think about that pillar as almost an API uh, into which we will snap the international cyber strategy, uh, which our team is now in the course of developing. And what would that look like? What is an international cyber strategy? How do you get other countries to sign up to something like that? Especially, I think, in a world in which the United States is clearly you know, creating uh, blocks. And it seems like we're, you know, in a world where it's the US versus China and other countries kind of have to uh, align accordingly. Well, the again, back to that affirmative vision point, I am the parent of two middle school age daughters and pounding the table and demanding uh, that they follow my way or the highway is not an effective parenting strategy. It's generally not an effective diplomatic strategy either. So we have allies and partners around the world who are generally with us uh, on these technology topics. We have a handful of countries around the world that generally have a very different view. Uh, and then we have the vast middle, uh, the many states that frankly don't wanna have to choose. And so it is incumbent upon us again to articulate that positive attractive vision 
to recognize that we're not gonna have ideological purity or pure monogamy uh, from most states. And we have to be pragmatic in dealing with them across uh, a vast set of technology and other topics and, and recognizing that sometimes those have to be dealt with on a on a one by one basis. Hmm. You know, there are critics of uh, the way in which the cybersecurity strategy is being rolled out. And some of those critics and FPs reported on this uh, reporter Rishi Iyengar has a piece uh, on that that's up on our site. Um, but the criticism is that some of the most ambitious goals around data privacy and cloud risk aren't really finding a place in the implementation phase of the White House's cybersecurity strategy. And some of that dovetails as well with what I was describing earlier about the sort of reliance on the private sector. Are those two things linked? And how do you take that criticism? I think they're definitely linked. Uh, and I think the criticism is well-founded. The reality as well is we live in a democratic society and much of what would actually be required to implement this sort of robust data privacy recommendations that we're talking about requires legislative action. So the president has called for it um, and we need uh, uh, our representatives on, the, on Capitol Hill uh, to take that up. But I think there is a, a foundational truth in the criticism that I and our team live every day, which is we should be working to the greatest possible extent to close the gap between strong domestic policies in this area and a strong foreign policy. We're always strongest when we have the moral authority to say, uh, do as we do, not as we say. You know, speaking of the sort of skills gap you alluded to, uh, you're still, I guess, uh, an outsider, a former outsider now in, in firmly in government. And there's often a criticism of government, um, you know, both, you know, in the White House, but also in Congress, especially as we have lawmakers who are much older on average than, you know, the rest of the population. There's a sense that um, our elected leaders, our politicians are a step behind, you know, where tech is headed, uh, that they may not be best placed to understand not only how the tech works, but how to control it and how to regulate it. Um, and you've been in the private sector, so you've probably seen that firsthand in, in your interactions with government, um, public sector, private sector. Uh, what's your sense now that you're in government? Um, what What is the gap uh, in the State Department, in Congress, and how do you think we can address that? I think there's plenty of blame on both sides, candidly. Um, the ideal future, in my view, is a world where we have uh, public-minded executives serving in businesses, uh, running, leading, scaling businesses, who believe that working with government is an important part of their jobs, who are willing to go serve in government over the course of their careers. Uh, and I think we benefit from having people in government who have both uh, some technical knowledge and also commercial sensibility. One thing that has struck me is uh, I was concerned that there, there might not be a deep reservoir of technical expertise in government. Uh, I actually find there's terrific tech expertise in different uh, parts of the government, certainly in places like the NSA and Cyber Command, uh, in the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, in parts of the State Department. If I were to identify one thing that is in short supply, generally it's commercial sensibility. And so I think Explain we, what we would means. benefit from more 
exchange between the public and private sectors in order to ensure that we have, again, public-minded companies and a government uh, that is capable of working with uh, commercial enterprises effectively. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which we often use, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLive for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to take a few subscriber questions as I weave my way through uh, some other topics. I, I want to get to, to Russia, to China, and obviously to AI later. Um, but Aaron Luce, who's a subscriber at FP, asks um, how we can steer allies and partners away from problematic vendors of telecom infrastructure when we have few alternatives to offer. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's a, it's a large part of my role. And let me offer a, a, a little bit of historical perspective there too. 30 years ago, if, if we've been sitting here having this conversation, uh, we and a handful of our like-minded partners, Finland, Sweden, France, Japan, South Korea, had together in our industrial base what felt like an unassailable advantage in telecom tech. Uh, Nokia and Ericsson and Samsung, but also uh, Alcatel, Lucent, Bell Labs, uh, Motorola, a terrific ecosystem of companies that is now much smaller than it used to be. And with PRC subsidies and IP theft, uh, Huawei and other untrusted vendors developed a commanding position in markets across the world. And now we're fighting from behind in a lot of ways uh, to restore trusted infrastructure uh, to those networks. And your reader is correct that we, in the United States at least, uh, don't have a national champion. Uh, I am happy, and I in fact do spend a lot of time all over the world advocating on behalf of non-US companies uh, that are trusted vendors in this space, that are rights respecting in their development of technology, that do not have deals with any government uh, like Huawei has with the PRC to send user data back to the government. So that's an important piece of the problem, advocating for those those trusted vendors. The development of open radio access networks, open RAN, is another piece of that. By decoupling the vertically integrated telco stack, we can introduce more innovation at every layer and hopefully over time create a more vibrant global uh, ecosystem of businesses that are building elements of the stack. Uh, and maybe the, the final thing that I'll say is uh, we're working also to put in place the financing mechanisms that will be helpful in going head to head uh, with, uh, with these untrusted vendors uh, in different parts of the world. So let me push you on that a little bit. Let's say we've got a, a country that is, you know, middle income roughly that has a, a debt crisis of sorts. Um, and China comes along and says, 
we will build three bridges and two giant highways and we want you to sign up for x y and z telecom vendors uh and then you hear about it what are you going to say exactly because yeah. this is a country that needs the infrastructure that needs the money that also needs the telecom infrastructure and an offer that you might be backing let's say from finland or the united states or anywhere that simply doesn't have the same strings attached uh how do you compete yeah i think those belt and road deals looked better 10 or 15 years ago than they do today the promise of them was better than the reality of them and the bloom is off the rose so to speak in a lot of parts of the world countries recipient countries are uh awakening to the reality of some of that debt trap diplomacy. You see uh, roads that haven't been maintained. You see soccer stadiums that haven't been maintained, uh, multilateral organization headquarters that are bugged. So when I am talking with counterparts about these deals, um, I tend to make a few points in addition to that empirical evidence now that we have a decade or a decade and a half of empirical evidence about debt trap diplomacy. Uh, I think there are three other arguments worth making. One is a human rights argument about data integrity and privacy uh, and the, the empirical reality now that uh, these untrusted networks uh, are not being responsible custodians of the customer data that's flowing through them. Uh, the second is that there are limits to intelligence and information sharing that the United States and our like-minded allies can do uh, with countries that have wide-scale deployments of untrusted infrastructure. And then third, Everywhere I go, countries want to develop innovation economies, startup ecosystems, and there are different ingredients that make those successful. Uh, R&D, government R&D is important. Higher education is important. Uh, venture capital, uh, small startups, but also large company, large tech company investment, because a generation of product managers in large technology companies go on to become your next generation of founder CEOs. And those big companies are increasingly skeptical of making large investments on top of untrusted infrastructure because they're concerned about the integrity of their IP. So I have to push you here because I agree there is a global disillusionment with what China and its investments mean. There is also disillusionment with the multilateral financing system, IMF, World Bank. There's a reason why countries like Pakistan and Argentina and Sri Lanka have gone back to the IMF as many times as they have, because the previous uh, loans didn't quite work out as planned, or they were too onerous. And then there's also disillusionment with, with America. And, and you know, you, you've served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and much more than, than I know about this. I mean, you've seen that there's a general disillusionment with America as well, uh, not only in terms of U.S., involvement uh, in parts of the world, but but also in terms of U.S. diplomacy, U.S. interests. it's Isn't it harder and harder for America to be indignant uh, and to say, look, look at what doing business with China means and do business with us? Yeah, I don't think uh, being indignant is the right approach. Um, I don't think it's morally justified. I also don't think it's effective. Um, but I do think that being empirical and clinical and analytical and laying out uh, for people to see for themselves the results of some of these belt and road deals that have come 
with enormous strings attached, the full price of which is only beginning to become clear in many of the economies that did the deals 10 or more years ago. I do think we can be clinical and empirical in laying that out. I think we also have to approach the conversations with a real degree of humility for the reasons that you lay out. Yes, I, I uh, uh, played a role in uh, 20 years of American uh, military operations around the world that left a lot of people in a lot of countries disillusioned in some ways uh, about the promise of uh, the American vision and American power. Um, and, you know, I fundamentally believe in a, in a couple of those old adages, one that uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest, uh, and that the United States can be trusted to do the right thing only after exhausting all of the alternatives. I think that the, those old jokes are grounded in, in some real truth. Hard to disagree with that. Um, another one of our subscribers, R. Bossart, asks um, how all of the policies we've been discussing so far today, how are they going to succeed in the long run, given the United States' shortage of trained labor, higher per unit costs, and China's drive to flood the low-end chip market, lowering companies' profit margins in the United States? What's your sense of how we compete? Yeah, I, I could pretty pretty quickly exceed my remit uh, as, a, as a diplomat here, but my view is that we, we had uh, 30 years or so of um, building global supply chains that were optimized really according to one variable, uh, and that was cost. And geopolitics, uh, the pandemic, uh, we had a convergence of factors that have led really to an awakening that actually, as is usually true in life with any complex system or uh, complex answer to a problem, optimizing for one variable may not be the right answer. And so now we are rewiring aspects of these global supply chains to account not only for cost, uh, but also for resilience and availability, for quality, uh, and for long-term sustainability. Sustainability writ large, from environmental sustainability to sustained access. I think if we do this right, the result is probably uh, a healthier long-term global ecosystem. And these are immensely complex systems. The semiconductor supply chain alone touches uh, so many countries. There are so many critical bottlenecks that it's intrinsically a multinational exercise. This work requires long-term sustained collaboration among states. And I, I think the core answer to your listener's question there is that we all are going to have to recognize that we will be optimizing for factors in addition to cost. Hmm. Let's go to AI. Um, what's your sense of where we are in the process of building a set of rules that countries can abide by? Because it strikes me as this is an area of such great competition, beginning with the infrastructure involved, two investments, to its usage in a wide range of other applications. Um, this is basically a great arena for geopolitical competition. And yet we're told by so many AI executives that the stuff that we're dealing with and we are creating could be 
dangerous for the human race. So how do you begin to regulate it? I can share a perspective um, and, and uh, happy to talk about what we're doing in the U.S. government on this front. My perspective is that uh, go, going back to my earlier comment about uh, uh, technology innovation as a foundational source of national or coalition influence, uh, we must ensure that maintaining our innovative edge is our North Star. That is the most essential element here, is ensuring that in a world where the generative AI genie is out of the bottle, there's no putting it back in. Pausing development is not a realistic proposal because not everyone will pause. And so let's maintain our innovative edge as our North Star and let's learn the lessons of the recent past with other technologies such as the social media platforms and recognize that a hands-off laissez-faire approach will not serve any of us well governments, companies, or citizens. And so I think the approach that you see the United States taking in this world where generative AI cracked into the global popular consciousness last fall, not really because uh, it broke through to a new plateau, we're on a smooth exponential curve of advance that's gonna continue into the foreseeable future. But there was something about its accessibility uh, something about the user inter interface and the user experience that really catapulted it into the popular consciousness. And so you saw governments around the world cry, we must do something. Nobody had a great answer for what we must do. Uh, the U.S. has chosen to lead by developing an answer to that question of what we should do. And so we've worked with seven of the leading companies to develop a set of voluntary commitments that they will abide by uh, that fall into three categories, safety, security, and trust. I'm happy to talk more about each of them, but working with the companies on voluntary commitments, voluntary for two reasons. First, because by their definition, they're not gonna constrain innovation, back to that North Star. Second, because that's fast. This isn't the last step in governance, it's the first step. And we had to take that first step quickly. I saw Oppenheimer recently, like many of us did, we don't have 12 years. Uh, it, it was 12 years from 1945 at Trinity to the creation of the IAEA. We don't have 12 years to put a governance regime in place. These voluntary commitments are a good first step. They, they're, they're done. It happened quickly. And now we're going to work to multilateralize them. We're going to do that across a few vectors. I'll be uh, very brief in, in explaining. One uh, is through the G7. Um, the, the Japan-led Hiroshima AI process. Japan is the, is the G7 chair this year. Uh, two, through a UK-led and hosted AI safety summit to be held in the fall. And then three, very broadly focused on applying AI for good in the United Nations in order to try to make progress against UN sustainable development goals, 85% of which today are off track, uh, but galvanizing broad, uh, support and enthusiasm in the world to apply AI to things like weather forecasting, climate modeling, medical diagnostics, agricultural productivity. And again, focusing on the upside and the advantages while also mitigating the, the worst of the downside risk. And where does China fit into this framework? Um, because it's one thing to talk about, you know, a multilateral kind of approach, but you know, how do you do that when China's sort of outside of, of that remit? 
And also, you know, how do you gauge China's uh, place on the development curve when it comes to AI capabilities? Artificial intelligence and, and particularly generative AI uh, require three inputs, uh, right? Uh, computing power, talent, and data. And one of the uh, benefits of free societies is they have access to lots of global data. Um, Chinese uh, restriction uh, uh, on data access has in some ways worked against them in the early innings of the generative AI competition. Uh, and so most assessments that I've seen put the Chinese a year or more behind in some of the most advanced generative AI development. I think though that that really is the secondary question. The primary question is the one that you started with, which is what are the areas for cooperation? How can we conceivably work together? And I think there's been a, a, a demonstrated openness actually on both sides uh, to collaborate in uh, support of AI for good. Uh, and again, applying AI to uh, try to make progress against some of the most intractable societal challenges that are, that are really global in scale, again, from climate to, to medicine. You know, you mentioned the um, Hiroshima process uh, and the G7, and it strikes me that the G7 has just emerged as this place where things get done. Um, as I think uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, it's the steering committee of the world. Um, you're going to the G20 in India next week, uh, I think a, a smaller meeting uh, related to, to telecoms. What is your sense of how, you know, when you have a steering committee like the G7 that is mostly Western, rich, industrialized uh, nations, what does that do to the rest of the world? Does it leave out large parts of the global South? And I say this again, um, with the G20 positioning itself as the voice of the global South, um, how do you then balance these two different groupings that are taking on the same issues, but with a different standpoint? Yes, the United States doesn't have a digital minister. And so I represent us on the digital track at the G7 uh, and at the G20 and appreciate the distinction between the two that you've made. The broad um, observation here, in my view, is that multilateral engagement uh, always needs to balance um, two often opposing goods. You're balancing efficacy with legitimacy. Efficacy generally comes from small like-mindedness, and legitimacy comes from breadth and inclusivity. And uh, these are both important goods. And so we need to engage in fora that allow us to accomplish both. The point about the G7 being highly effective, I think, is absolutely true, which is why from, a, from the, in terms of the early stages of multilateralizing AI governance, we believe that the Hiroshima AI process is an excellent first step. And absolutely, it's essential that the whole world um, have access to not only the benefits of applied AI, uh, but also a say in the governance regime. Uh, and so we will be working actively uh, across a whole set of other organizations. Uh, the OECD of five or six a dozen countries is, is significantly broader 
obviously, than the G7. Um, and then the United Nations in service of, of the sustainable uh, development goals. I think that you touch on access and inclusivity. I would highlight the important mission also of the ITU, uh, the International Telecommunication Union, which has, uh, among other goals, the goal of connecting the unconnected around the world. We've spent the conversation talking about uh, technology and I spend my waking hours talking and thinking about technology, uh, but we still have 2.8 billion people on this planet who are not even basically connected to enjoy the benefits of these technologies that we're spending time on. Um, and so there is an imperative uh, to go broad here and to spend time and energy and resources connecting uh, as many people in the world, ideally all people in the world, uh, so that all can benefit from the upsides that we're talking about. Yeah, I have to agree. It's easy to forget sometimes, despite all our talk about the number of people online, that there are many people offline still around the world and also people who are without literacy, for example, so have all kinds of barriers to accessing the things we're describing. Um, you know, I mentioned the uh, uh, the Chinese origin hacks uh, earlier um, in this discussion. They were able to get access to Secretary Raimondo's emails, for example, at Commerce. There were also some, some hacks at State. What is the U.S. doing to stop China or other adversaries from using cyber attacks against the United States and leading into um, next year's election and given the history of election interference, how worried are you about the American sort of security of its election system? I think that we have seen ample evidence now over a, a period of, of a couple of decades uh, that our adversaries and competitors will do things to us using cyber means uh, that they would never do in the kinetic world uh, because there are uh, response mechanisms in place in the kinetic world. We have uh, declaratory and escalatory policies, red lines, if you will, that drive our adversaries to uh, attack and manipulate us asymmetrically using other means, often digital means. And so we've obviously seen evidence from the election manipulation, disinformation, misinformation. So I was in a meeting at Homeland Security just a few weeks ago talking about the kickoff of, uh, of the campaign to safeguard the next American election, to ensure the data integrity of that election, to make sure that every vote's counted openly and, and accurately, uh, and that foreign powers uh, are not able to interfere in our democratic process. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's a significant diplomatic element to that, uh, making clear to countries around the world that we will bring to bear every aspect of our national power uh, in order to deter and dissuade um, interference and, and to defend uh, the integrity of our democratic process. And last question, then, since we're running out of time, you mentioned the difference between cyber uh, and kinetic deterrence. Do you think that's ever going to change? So if there were, um, you know, a lethal cyber attack on U.S. infrastructure that ends up impacting an election, um, could that ever lead to a different kind of response from the United States? I think that um, we, we can divide that conversation really into into two arenas. Uh, there, there are norms governing state behavior below the threshold of the use of force. Um, and then there are, there are uh, kind of protocols above the threshold of the use of force. 
below that threshold is, is actually where most of the interesting things are happening. We have the UN Framework for Responsible State Behavior, which is a powerful normative tool uh, that's been agreed to unanimously by every UN member state. Uh, it conveys a lot of moral authority and legitimacy on our activity uh, in cyberspace below the threshold of the use of force. Uh, I think above the threshold in the sort of scenario, Ravi, that you described, if, if lethal force were used uh, you, via cyber means to change, uh, to influence an election, then yes, absolutely, from a deterrent standpoint, uh, the United States would, would uh, have the option to bring to bear every uh, ounce of national power from diplomatic to economic to informational to, you know, if necessary and justified and appropriate uh, military. Ambassador Nathaniel Fick, there's so much more we could discuss. I know we're out of time, so I thank you for coming on FP Live. Thanks for having me. Enjoy being here. And that was Nathaniel Fick, Ambassador at Large for Cyberspace and Digital Policy. There's lots more coming up in the weeks ahead. You can stay abreast of what we're doing on foreignpolicy.com slash live. You can also watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. FP Live, the podcast, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron, and the executive producer of FP Live is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about.
Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.